Well, good morning. Well, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, you're not even going to believe where we're going to be today. It's, it's incredible. We, we look at a man named Stephen, and the last three messages I've preached on this have been all about him, and we're going to do that again. Um, if you would, would you stand with me for the reading of the word of the Lord? And I'm going to read this passage, and it's, it's a little lengthy, but we are in the house of the Lord. I'm going to begin I'm going to begin at verse 8 of chapter 6. It says Stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen as it was called and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran. And after this, his father died, or after his father died, God removed him from there into this land which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession into his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge that nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, they sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And rescued him out of all of his afflictions, and he gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could, not, could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near... 
which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. For, but when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would, have, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this resort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent both as ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices? During the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke with Mo to Moses, directed, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. 
But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And when they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and it says, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Then as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when they had said this, he fell asleep. Father, this morning we pray that you would get glory for yourself in the preaching of the word, in the reading of the word. God, open our hearts. Let us see God with clearer eyes than we've ever seen before. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, you, you may be quite fearful at this point today that surely he's not going to preach that entire section. Well, I just read the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. You could take all three of Paul's sermons and you could combine them and they're not as long as Stephen's sermon right here. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at this. Now, trust me, the struggle has been there for since last month. How do I preach this? Do I section this off? Well, here's what I feel about it. The book of Acts is not a, is not a doctrinal epistle. It is a historical narrative. We go to the epistles for doctrine on how to, that the church, how we should live and different things and how to understand what God is doing. But we, I want to, I want to preach this this morning in the way that I think Stephen preached it. It was one sermon. And so let's just back up and let's see what we have going here. What had happened was the church had stalled out due to, um, there were widows being neglected. So they ordained the first deacons. And one of these deacons is a man named Stephen. And the, and the scripture describes him as a man full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. But the verse right before that, after everything was set in order, it says, The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I think that is probably the catalyst for the persecution that has come against Stephen. You see, it's one thing to preach to the commoner, to the, the person out in the field and see them converted. To the religious elite, those that are, and when I say religious, I'm not saying that in a good sense, but I'm talking about the religious leaders. But once you touch their number, 
Once you start seeing, once they started seeing people from their own group start coming to faith and following it, becoming disciples of Jesus, what do we see next? We see Satan attack from the outside once again. And it says, and in verse 9 it says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, these, uh, these men that are called the freedmen, well, who they were, were, were were a group of people, a group of Jews who had been taken into captivity like 63 B.C. into Pompeii. And then at a later time, they had been set free and they had come back. And they kind of were their own group. But as you read here, there's about probably two or three different synagogues of these guys. And most likely, they probably squabbled with each other a little bit. But if you want to get unity amongst people who squabble, all you have to do is find a greater enemy that both of you are in agreement with. So they get all this group together, and it says they disputed with Stephen. Now, this disputing isn't just walking up and just starting an argument. No, it was, a, it was like a formal debate. They want to challenge Stephen on the things that he's teaching, the things that he's preaching. But it says in verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, it's incredible. When you're having these religious debates, and, and, and one side is, it's just like Scripture after Scripture after Scripture demonstrating and proving that this is the Messiah, or whatever it may be, how the other side, they'll get upset. And then what happened was this. It says they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They can't win the argument, but somehow they're still right. Isn't, isn't that, don't we see the same things today? I mean, this is what I believe. Well, this is what Scripture says. Well, I, I don't care what it says. I know what I believe. I know that this is true. What does the Scripture say? It's hard for religious people to, to accept Somebody like a Stephen telling them what truth is. Well, first they, they, in, they secretly get men to, to, to basically just gossip, you know, false accusations about him. Then it says in verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they, and they seized him. They grabbed him by force and they brought him before the council, meaning the Sanhedrin. Then they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words, now listen to this, against this holy place. You could say the land or you could say Jerusalem or the temple. He never ceases to speak against this holy place, the law, um, the customs, which the customs would most likely be circumcision and speaking against Moses. I mean, right up there, they instigated men to say, we've heard him speak against Moses and God. Isn't it interesting how that Moses got first billing over God, even in the way they said it? And so they're they're accusing him of what? They're accusing him of speaking against the land. They're accusing him of speaking against the temple, circumcision or the customs, and they're speaking against Moses. And it says in 15, it says, And gazing at him... All who sat in the council saw his face was like 
the face of an angel. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, I don't know. Maybe there was a slight glow about it. Maybe there was such a peace on him by the grace of God. But there was something about it that it really stood out to them. That they saw his face as though it was the face of an angel. Now, he's standing before the council, and the high priest says, they ask the question, are these things so? Meaning, is this true? He'd been accused of speaking against the temple, the law, circumcision, and against Moses. And so what does Moses do? Now, I'm not going to read all of this again, but the first witness he brings to the stand, and you'll see this all through the book of Acts, Every time Paul preaches or Peter preaches and Stephen, what do they do? They're always appealing. They're, they're calling in witness after witness of the old scriptures, the, the old saints uh, in the Old Testament. And the first one he brings is Abraham. Now, notice there was no accusation against speaking against Abraham. So why in the world would Stephen bring up Abraham to start this conversation off with? Well... He's going to talk about Abraham, and he's going to talk about a promise that was made to Abraham. And you see, the reason he's going to do that is he's going to demonstrate, he's going to say basically this. Let's remember Abraham and the promise that God had made to him, that he was going to give him this land, he was going to give him a people, and he was going to give him this custom called circumcision to give a sign that these are my people. Now, here's the thing about that. Abraham, the promise... And circumcision was all outside of the land of Israel, and it was all preceding the law. It preceded Moses. It preceded the temple. Every one of those things. So that's what happened there. And then we we turn over here, and we we, we skip on down to verse 9. and Actually, we we look in verse 8, and it says, And he gave the covenant of circumcision... And that's why I believe he's talking about, when he's talking about change the customs, you'll see this all through Paul's letters where he's, he's fighting against this in Galatians. And he says, he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and, and he circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. Now, I just want you to, to think about this as Stephen is preaching this message. He's basically been accused of speaking against all of these things, right? Now, you've got the council all gathered there. You've got all the ones who are accusing him. And, boy, they're sitting there and they're they're leaning forward and they got their... uh, Too tight. But anyway, they got their arms crossed and they're really listening, right? You can just see these two guys like, yeah, that's right. I've read that about Abraham. There was a promise. Yep, that's right. So we get into verse 9, it says the patriarchs, talking about the, the, the sons of Jacob. It says, jealous of Joseph, they sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. You go through and you read that story. You start in Genesis chapter 37, and basically there's one chapter in there that deals with Judah. But all the way to the last chapter of Genesis, we're looking at the life of Joseph. And every time it went, seemed like seemingly bad for Joseph. It is followed with, but the Lord his God was with him. I mean, he gets sold into slavery, but God was with him. He gets put in prison, but God was with him. That's not the way we think, is it? We've bought a little too much into Joel Osteen stuff, haven't we? If God's with me, surely things are always going to be well, right? 
Well, God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions, and he gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him a ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, if you go back and you read the story, what had happened was, was Joseph was a 17-year-old kid in his father's house, and family gathers around, and he's like, hey, everybody, I had a dream last night. And I'm not going to go into all of it, but he goes, he's talking about these sheaves of corn, and he goes, and all of your sheaves, they all bow down to me. I don't think, I always picture him as this naive teenager, you know, just the, I don't think he was at all. I think he was a very intelligent young man. I think it would have been more like I had this dream, and in this dream, this is what happened. Now, already we have a dysfunctional family in the fact that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other brothers, right? Well, so they already don't like him, but now he's told them a dream. Then he repeats it the next day with a dream, and he says, not only all of you guys, but even the sun and the stars are going to bow down, meaning Jacob and his wife, they would bow down too. And even Jacob rebukes him, but he, he holds all these things in his heart. So Joseph goes his way. His brothers go out. They tend the sheep. And Jacob says, go check on those scoundrels. They're always up to no good. And when he finds them, they see him coming because of his coat of a lot, you know, very color, a lot of colors. And they, they, they want to kill him. Reuben fights for his life, says, don't kill him, just put him in this pit, trying to spare him. Well, they end up selling him into slavery, and he goes down to Egypt. They've done away with this, haven't they? But keep in mind, we're, we're following a trail that God gave Abraham a promise. So even in this, this part where these patriarchs, they wanted to kill him, they sell him into slavery, Joseph is saved, he is, he is rescued by God, and you get to the end of the story, when after Jacob has died, the, the brothers come to him and they said, hey, uh, our father said uh, for you to forgive us, you know, I mean, I'm kind of paraphrasing, Joseph had already forgiven him. When they had to bow before him, just as his dream showed that that would happen. And at the end of it, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God sent me here ahead of you so that he would save you. Do we serve an awesome God? In order for God to preserve his promise... The very men that wanted to put him to death, God uses the man that they abused to spare their lives, to save them. Because God made a promise. You look down in verse 17 and it says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and they multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And basically this king, he put Israel in bondage. They became slaves to the Egyptians. But something happened at this time. There was a baby born, and apparently we have another one on the way. In the words of Paul Wilson, we need a new building, okay? Bigger than this. Pray. I'm not saying play, play the lotto, but if you, you know, no, don't do that. So anyway, it says, at this time Moses was born. Now, if I, if I can do math a little bit, I wasn't great, but I'm going to say it's about 320 years into the 400 years that God had told him 
that he was going to deliver them into bondage. So it's funny, there's 80 years left, but here's the thing. The, the time of the promise is drawing near. Moses is born. He's beautiful in God's sight. Now, at this time, the Pharaoh had put a command out that all the male children, they were to put to death when they were born. Because the, the, the population of the Israelites was outgrowing or had passed the Egyptians. So they said, we've got to knock this down. But what happened was Moses was placed in a basket in the river, and guess who finds him? Pharaoh's daughter. Don't we serve an awesome God? The very one who wants to kill him, he's going to raise the one who's going to deliver him. Incredible. So he was, he was instructed. He was brought up in, in, as his own son. He was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptian, and he was mighty in, in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, Moses' life is broke up into three things. He lived to be 120. The first 40, he grew up in Pharaoh's house. The next 40, he's going he's gonna to flee. But when he was 40 years old, it came in his heart to visit his brothers. Now, somewhere in here, he was raised and he was educated in the ways of all the Egyptians. But at the same time, Moses' very own mother was the one who was his nursemaid. And she got to spend every day with him pretty much. And so what is she doing? She's teaching him who you are. She's teaching him how you were spared. And somewhere in this, he gets the idea that he wants to deliver his brothers. Listen, he said he came to his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing that one of them had been wronged, uh, he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now listen, it says he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand and so when he goes back out and he sees these two guys arguing, two Hebrews, two the Israelites, he says, why are you fighting your brothers? And he shoves him away and he says, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? And Moses' fear hit his heart and he ran. And he ran to Midian where he became father of two sons. Now listen, 40 years has passed now. He's 80 years old. And when this 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And Moses saw it, and he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. And there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Moses trembled, and he didn't dare to look. God was calling Moses. He was now calling Moses to do what he had prepared him for, and that was to lead his people out of Egypt. He was going to deliver them. He was going to be the redeemer of the people of Israel. The Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. And now, and now come, and I will, and I will send you to Egypt. Now picture... Picture again the council sitting there. Man, I don't know who accused this guy, but this guy is spot on. They're, in the, they're out there, kind of like I see some of y'all whispering sometimes. I'm sure what y'all are saying is, that's good stuff. This is spot on. It, that better be what you're saying, right? Everything he's saying is accurate. How can this man be against the law? How can he be against the the, the, the circumcision, how can he be against Moses in the temple? 
He's spot on. Well, he talks about Moses continually. He says, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent both, sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation or the church in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received the living oracles to give to us. Do you see what he's doing? He starts with Abraham. Then he rolls into the patriarchs. He rolls into Joseph. Now he rolls into Moses. This is, this is Moses. This is the law, man. This is the one that we give so much reverence to. This is that Moses. Once again, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Not only did in their hearts that they turned to Egypt, but they demonstrated fully that they refused him. And more importantly, they refused and rejected God. By the time they came up to the land of Canaan, they turned away in unbelief. God saying their hearts, they have always erred in their hearts. And in all of their ways, they have not known me. I misquoted that badly somehow, but I think you get the, the connection there. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside in their hearts. I, as I read this, I'm just picturing the men listening. It's like, yeah, those patriarchs, can you believe? Can you believe what they did to Joseph? Wanted to kill him, sell him into slavery. They didn't even believe the dreams. Can you believe what they did to Moses? I mean, this is what they're setting here like. What are they saying next? We would never do that. Our father refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside. This is verse 39. It says, And in their hearts they turned to Egypt. And they said to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Isn't it crazy that the Catholic Church, I saw the other night on TV, I don't know what it was they found this time, but it was the real something or other of Jesus. You ever wondered why we really don't have those things today? Because we would make idols out of every one of them. But God turned but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. 
Even as God was delivering them, they were holding on to their false gods. Now he brings up a next point. The tabernacle. Am I, am I against the temple? He says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the, in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. So until the days of David, the tent, the tabernacle was set up in Israel. It was in the wilderness and then it was in Israel. But it says, referring to David, it says, who found favor in the sight of God and and he asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. He asked the Lord, can I build a temple? I want to build a permanent temple, a dwelling place for our God. But God told him no. He says, he says, but your son, he will build, he will build a house for me. And it says, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. But then he says something else. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? When Jesus was visiting with the woman from Samaria, she says, you people, meaning you Jews, you, you people say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. But, but we say it was here. And he says, you, you don't even know what you're talking about. He said, the day is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship him in spirit and in truth. And it will no longer be that we have to go to Jerusalem to go to a temple to worship God. And why is that, church? Who are you today? You see, you are the house of the Lord, the house of the living God, the temple of the Lord, the one that the true son built. You're looking at part of it today. So at this point in the sermon, when he says, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands, up to that point, the people listening were spot on with him. But at this point, all of a sudden, Fred looks over at Joe and says, see, I told you he's speaking against it. God doesn't dwell in buildings made by hands, but he dwells in the heart of his people. And then he says this. You stiff-necked people. You uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Do you know what that's like in modern day? You see, up to this point, everyone's nodding their heads. You might even say this. Maybe everybody at that point, right before this section we just read, they might have all started clapping. And Stephen might have stepped forward and said, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. 
Isn't it amazing how when you preach sermons, the very person that you figure ought to be really paying attention to this point, he's back there just nodding his head. Yeah, you go. And you want to stop and you say, I'm talking to you. And that's exactly what happened here. He's basically saying, yeah, we're all in agreement on all these things because they're true. They're scripture. But just in case you missed it, here's who you are. You stiff-necked, you uncircumcised of heart and of mind or ears. He says, you want to talk about circumcision? Yeah, you're outwardly circumcised, but in the heart, you're not circumcised. And he says, and you always resist the Holy Spirit. Because why? See, it was this Moses that said there's going to come a prophet much greater than me. That's the one you need to listen to. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Which ones? They persecuted Joseph. They persecuted Moses. He says, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Look what he says in Second Chronicles, the, the very last chapter. Chapter 36, Second Chronicles. Beginning in verse 15, it says, I think it's verse 15, yeah. 36, beginning in verse 15, it says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them, Israel... He sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But listen, but they kept mocking the messengers of God. They despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged, he gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. I just got to be honest, at this point, the sermon completely changed in the, in the ears of all those who were listening. He was giving them a rundown, and he starts with a, a man named Abraham. He begins with a promise that God made to this Abraham. In that promise, he promised not only a land, not only his descendants would be as the stars of the, of the heavens and the sand of the sea, but he promised a seed. And this seed, Jesus Christ, came into this world. And they, just like their fathers before them, they rejected him. Even though the scriptures were plain, even though they could not withstand the wisdom and the power of the spirit that Stephen spoke by. They couldn't do it with Christ. They couldn't do it with Peter. They can't do it with Stephen. They're not going to be able to do it with Paul. But yet they continually reject. They resist. They resist. And he says, you received the law. It was delivered by angels and you did not keep it. So what do you do with a man like this? You think this was politically correct preaching? I am about sick and tired 
Listen, church, we live in serious times. Politically, you name it. We live in serious times. Things, tension is running heavy. It's running thick, is it not? But it's running that way in churches. It seems like the goal of so many Christians is to be able to sit down and have a cordial conversation about things we don't agree on. Now, I'm all about trying to do things right. But my main goal is not to come away from saying, hey, me and -and so-and-so, we didn't even get into an argument. He still is lost as a goose, but my goal was that we wouldn't get into an argument. Let me tell you something. The, The gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul said, is so serious that if you're preaching another gospel, he says, you need to go to hell. That's what anathema means. This, this time of, of, of just wanting to sit down and everybody get along and, and sing kumbaya, oh, that stuff needs to go out the window. The Word of God needs to be preached. You think Stephen went into this knowing what he says? Do you understand that when it started, the allegations that were laid against him, if he was found guilty, he could be put to death. He was not careful As far as trying to preserve his life in his sermon, he was careful in presenting the truth of the gospel from start to finish in his message. These people are faced with one of two options now. They can be like in Peter's first sermon when he says, You are the ones that put the Lord of glory to death. And God raised him up and they said, Men and brethren, what must we do? Or they're going to be like the other side and they're going to gnash. They're going to grind their teeth at him. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody at such a rage. I think I have. Where they're just standing there and their teeth are just, they're just gritting their teeth together. Now, I want you to get a picture for a moment. What do you think Stephen looks like? You think Stephen's looking like a wild, crazed animal? No, the the Word of God describes Stephen as a man who was full of the Spirit. He was full of wisdom. They ground their teeth, but he, full of the Holy Spirit... He gazed into heaven. He looks up and he, and he sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I want to ask you something today. Are you afraid to tell people about Jesus the way it ought to be told? Not here to play patty cake. The goal is to get along, but to say, this is what the Word of God says. And I'm not talking about having a debate just for the sake of a debate. I'm talking about genuinely wanting this person who does not understand truth to really see who Jesus is. That they might come to saving faith. Do we see Stephen trying to preserve his life at this point? I mean, he sees people who are so enraged at him, and then he looks up, and he says, I see the heavens opened, and I see Jesus standing 
at the right hand of God. Can you imagine how much more enraged they were? The very one that they have tried to put out of the minds of the people. He has just accused them of rejecting him to the point of death. And now he says, I see Jesus right now standing at the right hand of God, which means this. He was standing in the place of authority. He was standing in the place of power. The judge of all the earth is coming back, folks. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. Have you ever noticed that the people who have nothing, they have no backing in what they believe, you ever notice how they deal with a debate or an argument? They simply scream to, to not be able to hear anything. They just shout and they won't. There's no rational conversation with them. But they cried out. They're shouting. They're, they're just screaming. They stop their ears and they just rush. It's like a mob crowd just coming at him. And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, it's interesting that one of the synagogues of the freedmen was from Cilicia. We're going to find out this young man, that's where he's from. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when, they, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Full of the spirit to the very last breath. Even those who hated him, even those who were basically not hating him, but hating God. They were hating Jesus and putting him to death as an ambassador of Christ. Even at that point, there was no revenge. There was no anger. There was no hatred on Stephen's part to them. But his prayer for them is, Lord, forgive them. Now here we, well, we have, well, we see Stephen shows up on the scene. He's a man that is. Very well respected. They said, choose out from among you seven men. Stephen heads up the list. Full of wisdom. Full of power. Full of the Holy Spirit. And then we see this message. He, he comes on the scene. He's ordained a deacon. He does these mighty, wonderful things like the works of an apostle. And then we see him get to preach a sermon. And then we see him die. So many Christians look at this as a waste. They look at this as a waste. But I'm going to read the first four verses of the next chapter just so you'll see what, what was God's purpose in this. Well, I want you to know something. We're about two years into the, the, after Jesus had died and the church is going in Jerusalem. Okay, About two years has gone on so far. And listen to this. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Okay, so on that day, not only do they put Stephen to death, but now 
persecution has turned up. You know what they're saying, basically? We've got to put every one of these guys, we've got, to, we've got to get them all locked up. We've got to put them to death or put them in prison. There's priests that are turning to this stuff. They're becoming disciples of this Jesus who we know is dead. We, let's turn the heat up. And it says, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. You go back to Acts chapter 1, and he says, you're going to be witnesses of mine in Jerusalem. They've done that. He says, and in Judea, we see this. And he says, and in Samaria. And then fourthly, he says, and in all the parts of the earth. You see, God is in control. God uses the martyrdom, the first martyr in the book of Acts. He uses Stephen's martyrdom to do what? To spread the gospel. If you think that sounds harsh, I want to remind you of something. If you're a Christian today, you have been bought with a price. Your life had no purpose for anything other than the flames of hell. And Christ redeemed you from that. If Christ so desires to use your life as a martyr, then God's will be done. He used Stephen's life as a martyr, and it says this. It says that devout men, in 8-2, it says devout men, they buried Stephen, and they, and they made great lamentations over him. What a loss. It would, it would hurt. But Saul, who was later going to be Paul, he was ravaging the church, and he was entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Saul is now out. I mean, Satan is in full force using Saul to just try to destroy the church. But listen to this. Now those who were scattered, they went about preaching the word. They didn't go into hiding, folks. God used the persecution so that the gospel would be preached.